Hey, everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Gold podcast, the best place in the entire world, including, and this is important, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I've got an amazing interview with Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC. That's the Southeastern Conference, not the Securities and Exchange Commission. So many of my friends, when I said I was talking to the commissioner of the SEC, were like, good for you. You must know a lot about like regulations and finance. I don't. I really don't. It makes no sense that I'd be talking to the commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission. I had to look up what that stood for. But Greg, that's a completely different story. He is amazing. This interview is a masterclass on leading through chaos and his approach to reading books is worth the entire listen. I've been telling friends about what I learned in this episode for weeks and I can't wait for you to hear it. Now, if you're listening today on June 14th or really anytime that week, make sure you check out the Beyond Perfect Challenge I'm doing right now. It's a free five-day challenge about what it takes to win the race against perfectionism. I'm teaching five lessons, an hour long each day. And if you can't join us live, don't worry. We'll send you a free replay so you can watch it on your own time. You can sign up right now at acuff.me slash challenge. That's www.acuff.me slash challenge. We'll link it in the show notes. And as always, today's episode is sponsored by MetaShare. Have you guys ever had buyer's remorse? You know, that feeling of intense regret because the thing you thought you just had to have was only something you used once or twice. For me, it was the time I bought a really expensive road bike because I thought I was going to get into cycling. I proceeded to hang it on the wall in my garage and feel ashamed for six months. Well, I know some of you are experiencing buyer's remorse right now for something much more frustrating. You know what I'm talking about. It's the health care you rushed to get during open enrollment last December. Well, I have some good news for you. You've probably heard me talking about our main sponsor for this podcast, MetaShare. And these guys have the answer to healthcare buyer's remorse. Check this out. Members of MetaShare save up to 50% or more per month on their healthcare costs. They say the typical family saves up to $500 per month. And here's the best part. You can become a member at any time. So that means it isn't too late to ditch your buyer's remorse and switch to a more affordable healthcare that will save you money and help you sleep better at night. If this is your first time you're hearing about MetaShare, it is the best alternative to health insurance that allows you to share the burden of medical bills, offers access to 900,000 plus healthcare providers, and has a proven 25-year track record. Plus, in addition to saving hundreds per month as a member of MetaShare, you will also have access to free telehealth and free telecounseling. You won't find that with any traditional health insurance provider. Guys, it only takes two minutes to see how much you could save. Go investigate that for yourself and your family at metashare.com slash John. That's metashare.com slash John. Remember, John doesn't have an H in it. So it's M-E-D-I, that's meta, share, S-H-A-R-E, dot com slash J-O-N. All right, let me share a little about Greg's bio. Greg Sankey became the eighth commissioner of the Southeastern Conference on June 1st, 2015 and immediately embarked on a journey to build upon the SEC's recognized success, strong foundation, and rich traditions. That's pretty amazing. He's only the eighth commissioner. Now, prior to joining the SEC staff, Sankey was commissioner of the Southland Conference for nearly seven years. He joined the Southland Conference staff in 1992, where he served as both assistant 
and associate commissioner before he was named commissioner in 1996 at the age of 31. A native of Auburn, New York, Sankey earned his master's degree from Syracuse University and his undergraduate degree from the State University of New York College at Cortland. Sankey and his wife, Kathy, reside in Birmingham, Alabama, and have two adult daughters, Hannah and Mariah. And here's my conversation with the man himself, Greg Sankey. So, Greg, the first question seems very obvious. Um, You just led the SEC through one of the most stressful years of our generation, and it's not an exaggeration to say that from a sports perspective, a lot of the country was watching to see what the SEC would do with the football schedule and COVID. As a leader, how do you even begin to take on a challenge like that? Like, what are the early steps that you go, okay, this is something so massive to wrap my hands around. What do I do? The good news is you don't have a choice. And if you had a choice and you realize what you're you're about to step into, people may, you know, veer left or right rather than trying to to continue forward. Uh, It's really interesting that the best metaphor I had is that we were building the bridge as we cross the river and writing the instruction manual with one hand as doing so as we were doing so. And and that's really what, what happened. And the effort became to, to change our operating rhythm, which facilitated much more timely communication and effective decision-making and actually try to plot out from a prediction standpoint, the big events or the big decisions really that were going to have to take place. So that when it came time to make a decision, nobody was really surprised it was in front of them. And when, when we shut down back in March of 2020, everything was new, everything was big, and everything was a surprise. And, and you just, we, we can't function like that. So it became very much, uh, make it up as you go. I, I think I have to be honest about that. Never quit trying but also try to figure out what, what was going to be out there ahead and, and is there a way to work through the issues. And then a lot of sitting catatonic on my front porch wondering what in the world did I get myself into. Yeah, so the operating rhythm is an interesting phrase. When you say that, are you saying, okay, we were used to a certain type of rhythm, things took this amount of time or there are this amount of layers or steps and we had to kind of triage that and go, okay, we need to go faster or we need to remove layers. Is that what you mean by operating rhythm? Exactly. And we had a cadence of meetings, a cadence of communications, uh, a cadence of decision making that was, that was pretty normal. I mean, like decades of the rhythm. And quite rapidly, when we stopped in, in March of 2020, we were literally scheduled to be in that rhythm of meetings on a Wednesday and Thursday with the directors of our athletics programs and then the presidents and chancellors of our universities. And so that was the end of normal. And we had to meet on Friday. Well, we didn't call meetings of presidents with 24 hours notice because they're very busy people. And then we had to meet again Tuesday and then we had to meet again you know, Wednesday. And we got into this like daily rhythm for a while and we realized we were wearing everybody out. It was counterproductive. Then we pivoted to three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I was joking with with a member of my staff. What that meant is you had no weekends because you spent the whole weekend trying to prepare for Monday's meeting. And it it really, uh, you know, ended up in that kind of granular analysis. But it was all about how do you make decisions? But really, before the decisions came, how were we going to communicate? And 
I'll, I'll just offer this. When we stop, one of my statements that didn't withstand the test of time very well is we're going to break into a bunch of different small groups. And they can talk about the problems in their area and then bring it to the bigger group. And after the very first issue where we argued in a small group and then argued in a group of 14, which is the number of our, our athletics programs and universities, I said, look, no more small group work. If we're going to have a fight, we're all going to have a fight together. and yeah. We'll get to it then. We're not going to do sub layers of fights to then build up yep. to a bigger fight. Let's just right. go ahead and have and have the fight here. It feels like there's a lot of teams and companies that learn some really interesting efficiency, maybe something that took six months now took six weeks, but they can't run at pandemic speed forever. So they land somewhere in the middle. They go, here's what we used to do. Here's what we did for, you know, the crutch of it. Do you think teams are going to land back in the middle? Like, with their speed, with their communications, with their planning? That's a much better way to ask the question I'm typically asked, which is, what did you learn that will change how you operate? And that's really simplistic. So I learned that if we had a football game scheduled on a Saturday, on Monday, I could make some phone calls and reshuffle the whole deck. Mm -hmm. I can do that. That's not going to be a lesson I carry forward because that's <laughs> not really productive. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Works in a pandemic doesn't work in real yeah. life. But uh, I think the forms of communication, so the, the hesitancy to just dive into video conference, we may arguably made a decades of progress in virtual meetings and virtual connection because I think mm-hmm. we're naturally going to be resistant. I think that can help inform better communication and better decision-making probably to a point because I still believe human interaction in person, in a room, over dinner, around coffee, whatever it may be, is enormously helpful to an organization. And then the fact that we can actually manage through an unenvisioned crisis. And we actually have those all of the time. They, they just kind of come and go. And they're really the same thing. Well, we ended up dealing with this extended crisis where you actually had to work through every day different elements. And, and I actually think the resilience and grit of that experience will be beneficial for everyone involved. And I mean that as broadly as possible for years to come. I think that's completely true. So to jump back to like a broader question so you've gone through this big leadership moment. For you as a leader, how, how have you learned leadership? So would you say that your, your foundation was, I had a parent that really showed me the ropes. I had a teacher. I had a series of jobs along the way. Because I think there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that go, okay, one of my goals is I want to be a better leader. That could be a leader of my family. It could be a leader of a church or a company. It could be a self-leadership. I want to get in shape. Your leadership background, where would you say these are the moments where I really started to learn what it takes to be a leader? Let me begin with like the, the reality of, I'll say, last summer when the crisis was, was peaking for us in decision making. The number of times I spent questioning my leadership and my ability to lead and what is leadership, like you're not supposed to be in these jobs and do that kind of thing. I, I listened to two CEOs interviewed as I was driving to work and Neither of them said, these were big corporate CEOs said, well, I took a step back and questioned whether I can actually do this. I think that should be like the next leadership book because it's never, ever discussed. And, and, I, and I truly believe even before this experience, if there's not time for introspection and self-analysis and questioning in a healthy way, mm-hmm. then one is not as effective a leader as they can be. Now, where did that come from? 
I'll, I'll go back to a moment, my freshman year in college, I went to a college at the time I was studying electrical engineering and I could barely plug in my headphones to, to join this podcast. So nobody wanted to plug a plug into a socket that I designed. So I spent two years studying electrical engineering. I was at Letourneau College, Longview, Texas, and I played college baseball as a backup catcher. And I, my first hit was against a team Really happy as a double. I can tell you everything about the pitch. Left-handed pitcher, curveball, right down the right field line. I had first slide in the second. When we played the team again at home, we were playing a doubleheader. I was sure I was going to play. Coach didn't even look at me. And so I just completely shut down. I was a, a vocal uh, person on the team. I'm a freshman though, right? So yeah. it's like how much leadership is there? Next day after I didn't play and started moping and shut down, there's a knock on my dorm door. And I opened the door and there's our head baseball coach, Sunday night. I'm like, Ooh. freshman, oh, oh, hey, coach. Yeah. And he's like, Sank, you got a minute? I'm like, yeah, you want to come? He says, no, we went and sat in the lounge. And he looked me in the eye and he said something I've testified to in court. I've thanked him for this. He now lives outside Nashville. Um, and we hadn't connected for 30 years. And I brought him to one of our events. And I said, thank you for this moment because it changed my direction. He said, if we'd have lost that game, I would have blamed it on you. And John, I'm a freshman. I'm a backup catcher. I'm batting like 220. I, I, you know, I, it's, there's nothing special happening here. I'm like, well, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, you have no idea how important you are to this team. And if you just think about that sentence in the context of leadership, um, we're talking about a team, your role, and how important you are. It wasn't about title, and there's books written about that. It wasn't about seniority. It wasn't about compensation. It wasn't about performance. But it was about the characteristic called leadership. He said, when you shut down, you hurt our team. And if we lost that game, which we almost did, I would have blamed it on you, and I would have told everyone. I'm like, coach, well, here, I was mad I didn't get to play. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a switch was flipped for me. And, and it was a change. I changed my, 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 the focus of my studies, my career focus, uh, what I wanted to do in large part because of that experience. And John, if you go back to what was a building block, there were building blocks before, but that was kind of a, a mortar moment, if you will. That's where things held together and have ever since. And I could go to last year. I read about a half dozen books. I read more than a half dozen books, but about six books that were really important in early 2020 about Winston Churchill's leadership, about leading a SEAL team, about uh, leadership in turbulent times, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, and Lyndon Johnson. And that's not in chronological order, by the way, but about their early lives, their leadership. And then I read a book about the pandemic, the great influenza. And all of those experiences were part of those building blocks, if you will, and many more. But that moment in college provided a connection that has uh, helped me continue to develop, which indicates there was something there that somebody saw well before I knew uh, a leadership gene, in air quotes, actually existed. How long did it take you to process and receive that? And, you know, was it was your first interaction? Well, I'm hurt that I, you know, acted that way. I'm a bear. Like, did it take you a little bit to kind of process that and react to that? Or was it instantaneous? I was emotional in the moment. In fact, I had to 
testify in federal court a few years ago. And one of the lawyers said, hey, what? What led you to do what you do? And I, I just, I couldn't figure it out. I didn't sleep. And at breakfast, I told that story. And the lawyer's like, you need to tell that story. So I'm in court. I'm like raising my hand. People are typing on like whatever they type on. Yeah. And there's a bunch of reporters. And I've become emotional telling it. Mm-hmm. So in the moment, I think there was a recognition that I had not met expectations, mm-hmm. which I, I would just suggest was processing, wow, there, there's something happening here that I'm not seeing. Was I the greatest leader the next day? No, but I no. never shut down in that setting. And, and I've used that here. I'm like, hey, you may be, I'm the commissioner, right? So I'm like the, the cleanup hitter or I don't know, the manager in baseball, whatever it may be. You might be the backup catcher. And I may be looking at you because I know how important you are and you don't see it. And if you wonder, come ask. Yeah. Don't make me come knock on your dorm room on a Sunday night because you'll take a step back. Yeah, I, I love I love that scene. I want to jump back. You mentioned something about you heard other CEOs and they didn't mention that they had questioned things. Why do you think leaders get to a place where they feel like they can't admit, hey, I don't know, or I can't question? There's do you feel like there's a pressure that you're supposed to have it all figured out by a certain point in your leadership? And to ask those questions is a sign of weakness. Where do leaders get stuck there? There are several elements to that. I think one, the expectation is is the leaders, the innovator, uh, the answer person, always Mm -hmm. on the cutting edge. And, And I actually think some of our leadership failures are because of those types of expectations, like they're inerrant in their decision making. And we have to do this, this and this as opposed to, you know, slow and deliberate think through as much as you can, acknowledge you could make a decision. And, and there was a book I read by Annie Duke called Thinking in Bets that was about decision-making as poker, not as chess. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that we've viewed leadership as all these strategic decisions. And certainly to extent, extent it is, but you're making decisions that are not certain on incomplete information. And this was last summer for me with a bunch of dynamics and you just don't know what card's going to flip next. And so what led you to that point had better have been well-informed and you had better accept the discomfort of, of judgment. Well, you have to take a step back then and analyze that it's not a linear experience, this leadership reality. It's not like we go from first base to second base to third base to home plate and we win, then we go to bat again just to continue the baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, metaphors. You may run to first base, sprain your ankle and have the trainer come out um, and you're on the bench for six weeks before you can play again. And and what are you going to do in that period of time? Are you going to, are you going to just sit there and stew or do you have the opportunity to take a look? How many leaders have said, you know, in, in press conference or in earnings reports, you know what, there's a lot of great opportunities out there. They're just not for us or they're, for us, but not right now. Or we're going to have to change 10 things internally before we can go engage in that activity. I mean, those are, are, are really difficult messages born from introspection. And, and I'll just go further. I, I one time had an interaction with a CEO where I asked, tell me your process for self-analysis and introspection. What are you doing to look carefully at yourself? I almost fell over out of my chair because the response is, well, I don't do that. And that's incredibly dangerous to an organization. I've asked a number of leaders that question, like, why do leaders fall? You know, why do sometimes leaders implode? And 
I think lack of self, you know, introspection, self-awareness, I think isolation, they're not in community. People can't, people can't tell them the truth. I had a leader say that one of the things he's seen is they don't have life-giving hobbies. The thing they're leading becomes their entire identity and that gets really dangerous. So from your perspective, and this kind of ties into my question about stress, it's been a stressful year for a lot of people. You talked about sitting on the porch, catatonic. I'm imagining you in Birmingham, maybe you're in Homewood somewhere, you know, but for you, what's a, either something you do to alleviate stress or a hobby you do to go, okay, I find a lot of life outside of this big thing, which I run. What's a way you kind of refuel the tank? Well, I had to, I had to adjust. So I have completed 41 marathons in my lifetime, which is there, there's a whole psychological yeah. study in that experience. And it's been 10 years. I kind of roughed up my Achilles. Mm. So I started um, engaging in what's called Iron Tribe Fitness, kind of a functional fitness organization sure. in Birmingham. Well, the gym shut down in March. So right at the point where I needed to go exercise, I could not. And I went about five days, John, where what was a pretty orderly day, wake up at 4.40 a.m., be in the gym at 5.15, clean up, go read for an hour at a Starbucks and then go to work because then the day was just gone, was all swept away. So what are you going to do? You're just going to exist in that environment and okay, it's gone. Woe is me. Or are you going to be active? And, and that's one of the really healthy lessons for me personally. And so I just decided I was going to go back to running and I made a deal with myself. I was going to run 35 minutes a day and like, why 35? Well, 30 was too easy a goal to pick. Like, that's obvious. So just add five more minutes and challenge yourself. Yep. I was going to keep moving and I would not miss two consecutive days. So it's all pretty simple, right? Yeah. 35 simple minutes, rules. Simple keep rules. moving. Didn't have to be fast. Yeah. Just no, no distance. And then in mid-April, I had run four days in a row. And I, I said, well, I'm going to run for a week straight without a break. Well, that week is now, I think, like 407 days as of this morning. So I, I've, I've finished this Oh, that's morning. an amazing streak. Yeah. The key there is, it wasn't the physical ability. I've lost 30 pounds in, in this experience. Mm -hmm. It was the mental health. So 53 weeks ago, we had a meeting of our athletics directors and our presidents trying to figure out when can we open locker rooms and weight rooms again? Seems pretty small. Well, big deal. I come in and lift weights. Remember, we didn't know how to test for COVID effectively. You, you couldn't get results for a week. Mm -hmm. And we're masking had been all over the place. How do you prevent spread of COVID? That's why we, we shut everything down. And, and John, everybody was all over the place. Like open them up now. Like Texas is opening the gyms. We have to open mm -hmm. up now in College Station and in Nashville, much more careful about mm -hmm. having access. And so I was out on a run the morning where we had these meetings and we had to make a decision and there was no majority. Where's it going to go? And I came up, I read another book called Never Split the Difference as a, from an FBI hostage negotiator. So it was either June 1st or June 30. So what's the obvious choice, right? June 15th, mm -hmm. just split the difference. It's June 8th. Because we had a medical group, the one task force we appointed from my first statement of, of smaller groups said, before you do anything, you need two weeks of lead time. And I went in and started making phone calls. And I went into these video conferences and people said, oh, OK, June 8th. Yeah. And then it just sailed. If I'm not running and active in my thinking, yep. 
I sit around trying to figure out and the light bulb never goes off. But then, so you asked me like, what do I do? And I just brought it back to my work, but I'll listen to you while I run. I'll listen to any number of podcasts just to help me think a little bit. I'll pop on music. And, and that's been a goal completely separate from work, but it helps sure. one's outlook and health. Well, you're one person. Everybody's one person. And so the segments of our lives bleed in in good ways to, to other segments. You mentioned you read an hour a day. Is that part of your normal routine? So you're, you know, in an average weekday, maybe even weekends, you're trying to read an, an hour a day? Well, I, I used to in, in the old days, okay, like 2020. Yeah, 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 exactly. Way back because when. Because that was, that was my rhythm. You know, I, yeah. I, I'd read for about 45 minutes. And, and every, your schedule is disrupted yeah. if you're traveling. And then what I found is I could not do that in the morning. So I'd run in the morning, get ready. The day would go. Mm. And then I could not shut down because it was a home, right? Like yeah. the scene never changed. Mm. And it just kind of light bulb moment. I put my reading at the end of my day mm. and that settled me back down. It created this separation before I tried to go to sleep. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll actually be very intentional if I can find 10 minutes to read when I'm in the really reading and intensely uh, effort. Yesterday, confession, I did not read at all. Mm-hmm. Just the, the day went away. But uh, out of seven days, I'll spend, you know, at least a half hour, five of those days reading. And uh, I might read fiction three times a year, generally trying to learn about people or thinking mm-hmm. or uh you know, tactics, you know, experiences. Uh, there was a, a, a lesson I learned. Don't read books about leadership. Read books about leaders and draw oh, your lessons from there. That's a good tip. That was one of the things that made me want to talk with you. I, I got to speak to your team. I think it was last summer. It feels like 10 years ago. Maybe last fall. It was last fall. We tried yeah. last summer and then we had, we to, had to reschedule. Yeah, we had to that's, pivot. That was yeah. A, I've, yeah, I borrow that. Yeah, that so... Phrase. One of the things that was interesting to me is after I spoke, you sent me a Word document with two or three pages of notes you had taken from one of my books. And I, I was so honored by that, but also so curious about how you read books. I think that's really interesting. So when you engage with a book, how are you taking notes? Where are those notes going? What are you doing with them? Can you walk me through that process a little bit? Sure. I, I go through highlighters uh, like some people go through chewing gum. And it started probably almost 30 years ago where I do not read a book without a highlighter. And now it's a compulsion. So if I pick up a book and there's no highlighter, I start to I start to yeah. shake. Yeah. And, and I learned that, and this is from reading, if you consume something three times, you've somehow internalized it. And this was not like the greatest intentional act that I've ever had, but it was an outcome. And so if, I, if I'm reading a book, that's one time I process the information. And then if I read something, I'm like, wow, that's a moment. I, I should, I should mark that. So I'll, I'll go through with a highlighter. That's two. And then I would come back and I used to do this on my own. Um, I would type up the notes and I might, I would have two feet of books stacked up where I hadn't typed the notes. And then like the whole Christmas break that I had, I wouldn't talk to my family. I'd be typing book notes. Like, Don't bother me. I have to type my book notes. As our daughters entered high school and could type. They made money that way, which I didn't realize up front. So I'm just going to confess, I'm not that bright, but I, somehow I end up in the right spot. So I'd pay like, okay, if you type this set of notes from my highlighted book, I'll pay you five or 10 bucks, right? They read the best part of the best books that I ever read. 
so good. What a oh, backdoor to knowledge. Absolutely. So and they, they, they kept them and they still will, will talk about them. And then here I have somebody on my staff who helps me with them. And what I do is I'll go distill the notes. So I fourth time and, and I, I have one someplace right here where uh, over about six months to a year, I'll go through all the books and then really force myself to say what it was a learning moment or what's something I have to remember. And those will end up being about 12 pages. So it's kind of a constant relearning process over a year of reading. And then I will keep that and go back to the really filtered out parts. They end up in PowerPoints. We'll begin athletics directors meeting with just flashing PowerPoints of quotes. And some may be about media information I've learned. Some may be about leadership and tactics. Um, one of my athletics directors sent me a Colin Powell quote, and I went back and dug it up about, uh, he used to tell his staff, first, tell me what you know, then tell me what you don't know, and then you can tell me what you think. And that actually became our framework for thinking through problems last year. We'd look at what do we know? What do we not know? What do we think? And then we added, what do we hope? But hope's not a plan. So that's, that's something else. But that's how... Yeah. Um, that's the mechanical process, but the outcome is I have this constant rethinking of, you know, lessons from like high level leaders. If you think about the books I read, how Churchill waged war, it's not like the friendliest title. I mean, I, he had to mm-hmm. bomb the French fleet six weeks into being prime minister. Like who does yeah. that? And how do you make that decision? <laughs> exactly. You haven't even learned like where the break <laughs> room is. Right. You don't even know who to be mad at at that point in your tenure. (laughs) Exactly. You don't even know how to get the paperwork filed. Man, that's crazy. Have you ever done a Greg book reading list? So if I'm, you know, I'm the president of, I don't know, um, Vanderbilt, and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. Do you have a list of books that you share with people? Yes. Um, And I actually have two printed cards. I had an experience a couple years ago. Um, on a podcast, people can't see this. Uh, I was 31 years old. I passed out in the Atlanta airport while I was standing at the urinal. So you can mm-hmm. figure out what I was doing there. Yeah. And when you're getting up off the bathroom floor, you're not in a good place. And like, that's the basic principle sure. of uh, a function. My I suitcase a, doesn't want to be on that floor. Like right, whenever I roll right. in my suitcase, it's like, what did I do to you? One moment I'm at the urinal, the next moment somebody's saying, Sir, that's fine. Just stay down. We've called the paramedics. And I realized yeah. my cheek was about an inch off the tile. Oh, no. And, oh, and he was no. talking to me. And I had an atrial fibrillation, uh, irregular heartbeat, the pop, just was lightheaded. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was leading a much smaller entity, the Southland Conference yep. at the time, but wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating, wasn't exercising. And from that, I, I created a set of principles. So I, I have two cards. One is born yep. out of that experience. And I'll give these to people when I speak. And I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm visiting with you. I have five book recommendations on the other. Mm-hmm. And if you'll notice, there's only four books and there's a blank line. So I can change the fifth book whenever ah. I want to. Uh, the, fir- the first is The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. And there's a line in there. There are a couple lines. I'm disappointed in my lack of disappointment. He's talking about his kids and his family. Like, oh, just right through the heart. Yeah. And the second was 12th chapter. I was, I had this experience on the bathroom floor and I'd meet with like corporate VPs, like TGA Fridays, marketing VP, uh, EDS, which was a Ross Perot owned company, Verizon, um, which used to be MCI. Like, how do you balance like work and family? It was like two sides. And I had six months of notes and I walk into this bookstore and it's the life you've always wanted. It's right there for 1999. I can have the life I've always wanted. 
And in the back of the book, 12th chapter, he says, now I'll paraphrase, balance is an insufficient goal to pursue. I've just spent six months trying to figure out what balance my life. It's not that it's too great. It's that it's too slight. And so that created an effort to write down a set of principles on how I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to function in a certain way. So those ended up on one card. I give that when I speak to, to students to say, look, and it's like the funny moment. Principle in life, if you're getting up off the bathroom floor, you're really in an unhealthy spot. And they're like uncomfortably looking around. Like I wasn't on the bathroom floor. The reason college age kids on a <laughs> yeah. Saturday night are on the bathroom floor. And then I went from that and I created some other things like words for living. So my five book recommendations, life I've always wanted. I went like completely down a rabbit trail. You have to figure out if you added that out. Be quick, but don't hurry, which was guy who played basketball for John Wooden at UCLA. John Wooden, legendary basketball coach. And the guy hated him because he never achieved the basketball success. And he ended up leading CBS production, CBS studios. And he's in his forties and he realized every day he used something that the coach wouldn't have taught him playing basketball. Mm -hmm. And it's just a great story of reconnecting, but also what was taught. The old Testament book of Ecclesiastes is on my list. I think that is one of the deepest. It's like an awkward thing to tell people to read because it's Mm -hmm. kind of depressing. But if you actually open up and read what what the author is saying, it describes life in like 15 pages and the futility of what we spend our time chasing as opposed, you know, candidly at the end, it says, have a relationship with God that's meaningful and true. And, and then the fourth book is Do Over That's so by crazy John Acuff. That's so crazy to me. And so you're on the list with Ecclesiastes. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do Over. I, I love that. That is that is so kind to me. And that was how we first connected. We were tweeting each other um, about books and about do-over. And one of the things that was interesting to me, when I the first time I came and talked to your team, um, I mentioned I was going to do that. And a bunch of people were like, well, ask them about this call. Ask them about the Auburn game. The SEC fan base is passionate to say the least. I grew up in New England. I didn't know. I moved to the South. I just thought people were into flags on Saturdays. Like all of a sudden it'd be like <laughs> flags are on cars. I had no, I, I mean, like I grew up with Doug Flutie doing something amazing against Miami in the eighties. That's all I knew of college football coming out here. It's crazy. So how do you deal with the negative criticism that in your position definitely comes your way? Does yeah. it impact you? Have you, you know, I've got to think of skin now. Like what's that process look like? I grew up outside Syracuse, New York, little town called Skinny Atlas on a lake, kind of same experience. Um, Syracuse basketball is a big deal. Don McPherson was a quarterback for Syracuse in the 80s, finished second in the Heisman Trophy. I've come to know him, and every time I see him, I'm like, you should have won the Heisman Trophy, not Tim Brown. I mean, that's as far as it went. And then I moved to Louisiana. Kathy and I were married, and eight months later, we're living in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And I challenge you to spell that. And she didn't sign up for that. And I didn't know it was going to happen. That was just the opportunity. And that was the introduction, the passion around LSU throughout the state. And then we lived in Texas for 11 years in the Dallas area and, and the passion around A&M. Since they're in the SEC, I won't speak of any other in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I got to, to see and watch. And then I moved here in 02 and was kind of a lower level and, and was able to watch the anger that can manifest itself. 
uh, and it's directed at a leadership position. So yesterday we were playing our baseball tournament. As we record this, we had a, a controversial call and a double play late in the game. And you can look at my Twitter. I have middle fingers. I have people who like their, their Twitter bio. This is my favorite. By the grace of God, I'm saved, <laughs> right? Yeah. By the grace of God, I'm saved. And then yeah. they're like, you know, you suck and I hate you. And, and I hope you, uh, suffer tremendous suffering it always kills me when it's like somebody like washed by the blood of the lamb like they love jesus and also hate me like, yeah, that's, that's right. a weird combo that's a <laughs> that's, weird combo you watch it play out on my twitter feed and i i felt badly because i actually after you tweeted that i looked i'm like oh this guy's getting an introduction into <laughs> my world and we had a long debate like should i even be on social media and yeah. we just decided it, it allowed me to be human a yeah. little bit talk about running, talk about books. I've, I've tried to avoid, I, I don't talk about officiating. That's what like, okay, I've been on, I've been commissioner for six years now. I've never once commented on officiating. I did take a shot at the NHL at a Predators game one time. I shouldn't have done that <laughs> on, 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 on their officiating. It hurts. I'd be lying or, or yeah. human, right? But it's like, you have to look at it and, you know, you look and somebody's got three followers and you're like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. The yeah. only thing I can do by responding is magnify their presence. So, hey, officials make mistakes. Yeah. Like, hello, world. Yeah, officials yeah. are human beings and not perfect. They're in a yeah. dynamic environment, making decisions in a split second. And they're actually paid to decide the close calls. Like the easy calls, I don't need officials to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he caught the pop fly and he's out. Okay, I'm glad the official got that right. It's yeah. like, bang, bang, make a decision. And yeah. if you're doing anything above 50%, if you think about it, like rationally, bang, bang, instantaneous decision. If you can get more than half of those right, that's actually success. Now, I expect them to be perfect and we have officials that, that don't stay with us, but I respect the fact they're going to make errors and people are going to be angry. Uh, and I'm glad they care enough to be angry. That's where I, where I, oh, uh, that's great. I'm glad they care enough to be angry. I, I love that. So one of the things that, recently happened for you, you were part of negotiating a $3 billion deal. So massive deal, ESPN, huge moment for the SEC. So I'm a listener to this podcast. I'm not going to be negotiating a $3 billion deal, but I'm trying to negotiate a salary raise for me. Like in the, you know, post pandemic, I want to get a raise. What are tips you'd give somebody who'd say, okay, what do I need to know about negotiating? Without verifying that your number is correct because it may not be. That's the media speculation, right? ah, which okay, I say. Okay. You've read that. So that's yeah. not a, I say that with a smile, but yeah. uh, at least that. How's that? that okay. makes I don't know. Like I have a degree from Cortland State University, State University of New York yeah. in education. Yeah. You had better find really good people around you, mm. your internal team and your external team, and understand that let's just say it's a salary deal. Like you're not going to go, go pay somebody a bunch of money as an advisor, but you need some people to help you through. Wise counsel. Yeah. Like, uh, so one of our advisors in the media deal is like, Hey, as you think about your ask, I tell these, these guys all the time that work in LA and their agents, they want to make a million dollars. And he'd say, I'll look at them and say, what's the difference in your life between 900,000 and a million? And they're like, well, you know, I guess nothing. And he says, yeah, but when you walk in that door and say, I want a million dollars versus saying, boy, $900,000, that's a big difference to the person receiving the message. Mm -hmm. And there are those elements that you never think about. So if you're trying to go from 50 to $70,000, I would argue 
that's actually not going to be a negotiated point. You're going to build that value all along the way. And in my life, I've always put the money aside for my job. So if you want to go through the principles that I talked about after the bathroom floor, money follows. It doesn't leave. And when I first came here, I was at the end of the hallway in a small organization, and I took a 35% pay cut to come work in the Southeastern Conference. And most people would say, I left the Southland Conference. I came to the Southeastern Conference. I must have made a lot more money. No, I was at the end of a learning loop that's part of how I make decisions about my career. And I could make another lap on that learning loop, you know, and let my passion maybe flicker or or die out, or I could go challenge myself again. And if they're going to pay me a hundred thousand or 110,000 or 50,000 less than I was making, if I learned and grew and built value long term, I'd have the advantage. No guarantees. Right. That, that's the beauty of that's it. That's a right? bet. It's a bet. Bingo. Yeah. And that's literally it. So if you were to see how do you how do I make decisions, I want to be challenged so I can learn and grow. The three metrics. There's no money. There's no geography. There's no size of house. Those are my three metrics I, I came to in the 90s. And they've served me really, really well. I've now gone so far from what you asked me. No, I thought one you you uh, you said okay, hey, you read that. We'll we'll see about the number. Let's let's see what the, where the final is. But so you said no money, geography, and size of house. Those are th- three things you take off the well, table. Uh, yeah, I mean uh, the the size of house is probably down. But what I will say is money follows; it doesn't leave. Yeah. So I've taken jobs with no idea. In fact, I told this story. I was making 40. I moved into the leadership position. The person who offered it to me said, we don't know what we're going to pay you. Can you wait until our board meets to figure it out? I'm like, sure. Now, that's a bad negotiating technique, by the way. Really bad. Do you want to learn, grow, and be challenged? Or do you want to make $5,000 more than they might have offered you? Yeah. Over a year minus taxes. We're like, in a week, that's going to be $7. And there's never going to be a week where you go, I'm so glad I got this $7. Yeah, well, it's your quitter book, which I read after you spoke, because one of my staff, who, by the way, has since quit and taken another job. So thanks I, for that. I had but, nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> They're on a learning loop. I said it was, it was perfect because I saw that she had the book. She was here and earned her MBA while she worked as an administrative yep. assistant, had a college degree in English. Couldn't figure out what to do, came here for four years, earned an MBA, and now she's in charge of human resources and business development for a company in this area. That's awesome. And and so I read the book and I'm like, that's, he stole my shtick, right? It's (laughs) like, do something that helps you do the next thing. Yeah. And figure out when you're going to make that decision. And you're either going to work for the Southeastern Conference or work for your cell phone bill, your gas bill, and your, and your rent. So if you bring it back. Yeah. If I could figure out how to do both, which somebody could argue, like if you look at Twitter, maybe not successfully, depending on how much anger there is today, it works really, really well. You may have different words around it. Put aside the things that that don't matter. You're going to spend all you make was one of the great lessons. There's a point at which you don't. You you save some. But early on, first job you take, the easiest one you take. I didn't read that one. I came to that one because like, I don't have a job. They want me to be the director of intramural sports at Utica College. And they're going to pay for me to go to Syracuse, which was the kicker compared to other jobs. I can get my master's for free. Yeah, I leave this with a master's. Bingo. I got experience, made some money, paid my bills. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have a master's from Syracuse, which I actually was really important to me. 
That's I wouldn't have chosen that. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to coach kids in like the high school level. And then it opened up all these doors. And that's where, when I put the money aside, it was $15,000 a year. So it's not like I was paying a lot of bills. I was paying enough. I had the, the master's degree opportunity. I had the experience. And then that just opened doors. And, and one of the pieces of advice, my first day in work, my boss looks at me and says, so we can go, go get your master's for free. When are you going to start? And I said, I'm really tired of going to school. I'm 22 years old. It took me five years to get through a four-year degree. I transferred twice. You're pretty twice. exhausted as a 22-year-old. Yeah, I, get it. I, I transferred twice. So it's not like I was this stellar academician and mm -hmm. I had it all figured out, which should encourage everyone listening that you have an opportunity. You just stay. Don't quit. Stay at it. Yeah. And uh, he says, look, if you don't start now, you never will. One of the best pieces of advice, mm -hmm. because people say it's like who you know, it's not what you know. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Timing matters. And so where opportunities presented themselves, if I'd waited a year, I think I'd be successful. We're probably not talking. I'm not here. Uh, who knows? And, and so one of the other pieces of advice I give is if you have a chance to, to go in your master's, uh, go get it right away. Start that process because it will not become any easier. And I have some staff who worked for me years ago who, who I, I gave that advice to on their first day of work because I learned the lesson who say, you know what? You're right. I've got two kids are in high school. I just, I don't have time to do it now. Yeah, it's, it's true. So one more serious question and then three quick ridiculous ones. Uh, last serious question. What do you think is the key to consistency? You mentioned that, like, just don't quit, like, you know, stick in it, stick around. People tend to struggle with consistency. We know the tortoise and the hare, like, what do you think is the key to becoming a more consistent performer, whether that's a job, whether that's a health goal, like you've touched on a number of different really helpful areas of life with goals. What do you think the key to consistency is? Well, yeah, you have to acknowledge perfection's not reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the, the line I should know who said it because I usually remember, but a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of little minds. It's a mm -hmm. great quote. Mm -hmm. So you think about my, my running goal. Consistency, like in an absolutist, is I'm going to run every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to run this fast, run this many miles. <laughs> what mattered? Move, right? Go move for 35 minutes and sweat. And don't miss two days in a row because the more you miss, the harder it is to begin again. This very simple. That was the right consistency. The ability to, to wake up every day and engage your mind, even when you know the difficulties are coming, probably the I get to versus the I have to syndrome and shifting that thinking. And I'm like into cliches now. 95% of life is just showing up. I mean, literally being there and engaged and doing high quality work and, and doing just a little bit more than they ask, that's the kind of consistency that they ask for. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, you know, uh, I need to have quiet time, devotional time today. Well, you know, I, I, like the pastor of my church, I know he studies God's word for two hours every day, right? That's what we kid ourselves. Okay, like I've got 10 minutes because everything's pressing around. me. Are you better off doing it? and having consistency, even if it's compressed or just ignoring it. And that's where that consistency word has to be a little bit malleable. And you have to acknowledge reality, but you have to set the right kind of parameters to keep you moving forward. Because if I was to say, what did I do last year that was really significant? 
at its essence, we just didn't quit. Mm-hmm. Yep, I communicated. We changed our operating rhythm. We figured out how to COVID test. We brought in the right experts, and we just kept moving forward. And if you'll keep doing that, even when it's incredibly difficult, you'll build up this momentum that just continues. And when you have problems, the momentum can carry you through. You can reset based on the progress you've made in the past. I, I love that. I'm working on a new book, and consistency is one of the principles. Because I think we want um, to be awesome before we're consistent. And I think the only way to be awesome is to be consistent. And because that, you know, and the expectation is you'll be awesome faster than you want, but it's the consistency that, you know, and it's not sexy and it's often boring, but it's the thing that, the thing that actually adds up. So I love that we just didn't quit. And if I could just add, we, we see these high performers. And I, again, I'll use this when I speak to students. Like, how do I become the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference? I'm like, I don't know. I'll tell you my story and you can figure out if that's the path. But what you don't see is me then. You see me now. And there is no shortcut. And you see Michael Jordan hitting game-winning shots in the NBA championships. I'm dating myself now, right? Because they're like, who's Michael Jordan? Yeah. Um, You know, Tiger Woods winning the, the, the Masters two years ago. And all the others, you don't see what it took to stand on the 18th green with the green jacket. It's not like you just show up and all of a sudden it's there. And I think that's one of the the lies that is communicated by not being honest about leadership, introspection, doubts, failures, questions, readjustments, having to, to make judgment decisions. Because one of the things I said to our membership is we're going to have more data last year when we get to July than we did in March, we're going to have a lot more information about COVID. It will be incomplete. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you can't make database decisions exclusively. Eventually, judgment will have to guide you. Just be prepared. That's it. You're going to have to make judgments. The way I say that is that we leaders who look for all the information will never make a decision because we haven't lived in an all-world for a hundred years, you have enough, like you get enough information, there's judgment, there's wisdom. But if your goal is all the information, you'll, you'll never have all the information. I, I spoke to a member of the New York Times editorial board. So like I ended up on HBO Real Sports and I'm hot boxed and they've got their list of gotcha questions. Yeah. And like the, the interviewer is an actor and he poses every time before he asked me the question. Yeah. It took me 15 minutes to figure it out. The Washington Post has a leaked audio of honest questions and answers between our football student athletes and our doctors. We told them what we knew. We told them what we didn't know. We were honest about both. And you're like, when you hear about it, you're like, oh, this is going to be horrible. I'm like, you know what? I'm proud we do that. That's exactly what we need to do is be, is be honest. And the New York Times editorial board is like asking me these questions. I'm like, look, we have to make the best judgments we, we possibly can based on the best available information. And that that's life. And we've somehow created this thought like, hey, we can figure it all out and it's all going to be perfect or there are no after effects of decisions, right? Yeah. You know, or I shouldn't be held accountable. Uh, every one of these decisions has outcomes mm-hmm. and you're going to make the best decision, take your time, gather the best information, admit your failures. And and to the extent you can be transparent and honest with your, with your groups and your, your leadership entities, do so. I, I love that. So last three rapid fire questions that are ridiculous. I wanted to ask you questions. Like you just said, New York Times editorial board. I've seen you on other podcasts. 
You've been on like, it was a huge year as far as doing interviews. I wanted to ask three questions you probably hadn't been asked. Um, number one, which of the SEC mascots, I mean like the actual animals, because some still have actual animals, is most likely to bite you? Like if you're looking, and it's hard to predict, we don't have all the information, <laughs> but it's a year from now and I'm interviewing you again and you go, yeah, crazy story, man. I'm at the game. He breaks loose of his handlers. When I was doing this research, because obviously I researched this question, I didn't realize there's three Tigers. The Auburn Tigers, LSU Tigers, yeah. and Missouri is the Tigers too. So maybe Tiger's the easy answer, but which is the which do you think is the animal most likely to bite you? Not in a terrible way, but it's a story. Yeah, the trap for me is when I pick one of 14, then it's like message words. See, he hates us. He's just <laughs> said it right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, we'll yeah. never get any officiating calls and we play all of yeah. our games on the road. Is that a gotcha question? Did I just oh. ask you a gotcha question? <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I would just suggest, so we do have, you know, a few human, if you will, mascots. Yeah, I'm not including them. It'd be weird if a human bit you. Like, that's a bigger issue. Yeah, well, we have wildcats, um, we have gamecocks, which are trained to fight, whether yeah. you know, we, we want to admit that or not. Um, yeah. Tigers, um, we have Bulldogs. an elephant that represents a school, Dogs. so stomping would be a greater threat there than, <laughs> yeah. than the biting thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a number of bulldogs yeah. involved, uh, tigers. Rebels, which could be more of a shooting incident than, yeah. than uh, that, which is not popular today. So there are any number of threats that can emanate at any time. So I'm just well, going to say I'm at risk at every moment I, from mascots. I love, I love that answer. Now, uh, second, second question. You've seen me on Zoom. We can see each other right now. I've spoke to your team. How many plays in an SEC football game could I survive until I started crying? Yeah, you wouldn't even get I saw that on Twitter and I'm like, well, if I respond, then then he's going to be looped into my officiating yeah. conversation. So yeah. I opted out. Uh, I'm not sure you would make it to putting on the uniform. <laughs> once, <laughs> no, and I mean that. I, I stand by these guys, like, right, for trophy presentations. And I look at them and I'm like, He'd kill me if he hit me one time. Like <laughs> uh, my so staff was trying to keep an offensive lineman last year off of a trophy stand. I'm like, dude, you're <laughs> going to get crushed. So, John, it's not you. <laughs> it's just the respect <laughs> for um, what the, the from talking about football. The young men have contributed uh, uh, to the preparation that uh, it wouldn't be a good scene. All right, last question. And I love the thought of me like I couldn't even get the pads on the right way. That's funny. Um, last question, which do you think is more likely to be added to the SEC um, on a D1 level, high lie or spearfishing? Oh, spearfishing. Yeah. Really? That was a fast answer. We uh, we almost did a series on bass fishing. Mm -hmm. So anything with fishing is going to be big in our region. Okay. Spears, bass, <laughs> hooks. So you feel like Highlight doesn't have a future in the SEC, right? I mean, I don't want to put you in another gotcha situation. Well, I'm not going to exclude it forever. But yeah. if you ask me between those two, will you throw fishing in there? You know, we've got the Salt Life, Southern yeah, Tide. Florida I schools. mean, we have, yeah, we're we're going to be fine on oh, the anything fishing. So blank fishing would have won. <laughs> that is great. Well, Greg, this has been an absolute delight. Um, I know how busy your schedule is and I really appreciate making time for me. Um, they, the door is always open. If there's ever anything I can do to encourage your team, I loved getting to do that. Um, it was just super fun to me. So thanks for, thanks for making time for this today. I think it's going to help and encourage a lot of people. No, thank you. I, I hope so. And appreciate your work. And, and as I've said, I mean, literally I'm looking at the card, so I've benefited from your writings, which is 
not easy either. That's the behind the scenes stuff that cries for consistency, yeah, right? Even exactly. when you can't figure it out. That's so. why I'm not big and muscular and can play SEC football. It's all the right. <laughs> I have writing fingers. I've I've sacrificed what could have been a huge frame for a writer's life, and it's you know a sacrifice. We'll go with that narrative. I I was a little harsh on the pads thing. I love that. I think that's your best answer all day. So awesome, Greg. Thanks for joining me today. Yep. Take care. How good was Greg Sankey, right? So good. I took a lot of notes during that one. I hope you did too. Okay. So that's all for this week. Make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days about podcasts. And thank you so much for writing so many awesome reviews. Those are the best. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. This episode of the podcast was brought to you by MetaShare. Text John, J-O-N, to 474747. For more information, huge thank you to MetaShare for sponsoring it. J-O-N, to 474747. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.